Welcome to Four Quarter Lives. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and I'm exploring how longer lives impact everything, from careers and relationships to the very shape of our lives. Truth is, you're likely to live a lot longer than you think. I talk with a wide range of experts and academics, as well as individuals designing and redesigning their own third quarters, the years from 50 to 75. Instead of recreation, they're thinking recreation. What can we learn from their pioneering roadmaps through life? David Sinclair is the CEO of the UK's International Longevity Centre. He's worked in policy, advocacy, and research on aging and demographic change for over 20 years. In this wide-ranging conversation, we explore different countries' approach to seismic demographic shifts, the pandemic's mass retirement and how companies are responding, shifting attitudes to dying with dignity legislation, inclusive marketing towards older consumers, and gender differences in life, work, and longevity. He shares a uniquely global view of aging society issues. It's nourished by the ILC's Global Alliance and its 16 representatives from across countries and contexts around the globe. Longevity is a uniquely broad tent, and David Sinclair opens a view of its vast and potentially huge opportunities with an impassioned invitation to the world and to each of us to wake up to aging's reality and multiple impacts and needs. So good morning, David Sinclair, and welcome to Four Quarter Lives. Thanks so much for joining me. Morning. It's great to be here. Now, the ILC, or the International Longevity Centre, based in the UK, is a bit one of the pioneers in this space. You were founded a quarter century ago. I think this is your birthday Mm -hmm. year this year. Does that make you an international pioneer? And have other countries been looking at aging for quite this long? I think certainly my former boss, Baroness Greengrass and and Bob Butler, alongside colleagues in France and Japan, were absolutely pioneering sort of that 25, 30 years ago when they said, look, we need this network. Um, Bob Butler, of course, was a very famous American um, doctor who coined the phrase ageism in the 1960s. So, so actually, we've been talking about some of these issues for a very, very long time. And I think his vision and the vision of the early individuals who set up the Global Alliance was, you know, how do we support productive and healthy aging across the world. Um, I don't think they really wanted to compete with the existing charities that focus on older people. They wanted to look at longevity, not just older people, but also how we get all generations to prepare for for long lives. So I think that that was probably where they were most pioneering. Actually, they they recognized there were huge challenges around old age, and there certainly were, but actually had got to a point where they'd said, look, actually, we, we think we need to take a future perspective and we need to be looking at all all ages. If you're thinking about aging generally um, across the world and sort of, you know, who's been doing it well and who hasn't, and um, I think one of the things that's worth reflecting is places like the US and the UK and France have actually been aging over about 300 years. So we've been aging for a very, very long time, very slowly, and actually we're continuing to age relatively slowly. The, the sort of countries we're looking at now, which are aging rapidly, I suspect we're going to see a very, very different picture to 
how government responds, how industry responds, and how individual responds. So if you look to places like Singapore, places like um, Hong Kong, places like Korea, uh, China, you're seeing actually relatively rapid engagement because you know they're aging at the same pace that took us 300 years over, over 40 years. And they're also coming from it from very different economic perspectives. So before we jump into what is going on in those fast Mm. aging countries, can you just go back a little bit? Because I think most of our listeners will be from uh, around the globe. Mm. A little introduction to the pioneers. Um, They won't know Baroness Greengrass. They won't know some of the individuals in Japan and France who might have been formative. Who were these people? What did they bring? Why? What motivated them? Yeah, it was a really interesting network, I think, of, of individuals who are friends, to be honest. I think that they they were friends who'd worked together on issues around aging and older people for sort of 20 or 30 years before that. They had, they'd been got together and, and been really, really strong friends. And it was, as I say, Baroness Greengross who set up ILC in the UK, but she was also the chief executive of Age Concern in England, which is the biggest charity over in England. Robert Butler, one who's Pulitzer Prize, very, very famous doctor over in the US and, and headed up research funding bodies in, in the US. And it was actually Robert Butler who said to, to Baroness Greengross, alongside a, a colleague from France, um, Francoise Florette, and a colleague from Japan who, you know, interestingly from a Japanese pharmaceutical company, but had been really, really passionate about this issue for a long time. So, so they and, and Bob just basically said, let's build this network. And it's gradually grown from the four into into 16 and mainly gerontologists and geriatricians um, they're all independent they all work but but actually we do t- try to we come together as the global alliance and we do try to also do bilateral projects together we for example ILC in the UK has just come back from doing an event at the British Embassy in Japan where we work with our colleagues at ILC Japan we've we've done events and activities with um, ILC in Singapore and indeed in in the US We've got a plan to do some work in Israel um, towards the end of this year with our colleagues in Israel. So, so we do like to, you know, pull together the global knowledge. And I think, what, as you sort of hinted at, one of the real strengths of the Global Alliance is actually what we have is a group of people who know their country very well. And, the, you know, the one of the things that we can really offer is to the British government and British businesses, look, this is what's happening in Singapore or the US and, for, you know, vice versa. And so are the 16 people who now make up the ILC, are they from 16 different countries? Is yes, that- so there's 16, so there's 16 different countries and they, you know, so we have uh, in North America, the US and, and Canada going down south. We have actually small country like Dominican Republic as well as um, Argentina and Brazil. So you have two, you know, two very big countries as well. And then in Europe, we have the UK, France, Netherlands and the Czech Republic. And, and we have Israel, then Singapore and then Australia. So, you know, we're pretty much over the whole world. Um, Australia and Canada are the, are, the, are the newest ILCs and in some ways they're already, you know, very, very active partners. I'm surprised not to hear Germany in the list just because so, it's b- big and old. <laughs> so we did, you know, we had a German one and, and I, I think at some point soon we would, we'd like to have another another ILC German one. I think one of the, the challenges that you get for is around how you, the nature of the voluntary sector and the nature of academia and the nature of individuals and organisations are very different in different places. And of course, you know, in Germany, for example, there is one very big um, older person 
person's charity, but actually it's very focused on sort of a service delivery. It's not like UK type advocacy charities. So, so I think what happens is, you know, in some countries, not necessarily just Germany, but but when you're trying to engage academics who are working with governments, I think they they worry a bit about how you know an organisation that that essentially is about evidence, but is also about making the case fits yeah. in with the the academic, and that's a challenge. I don't think I don't think exclusive to to Germany, but I I think it's one. And I suppose what it highlights is that actually, whilst we're a network of countries, and we are a network of countries. Actually, the thing that really drives members is individuals. So, you know, having someone who is passionate within Singapore or Australia or Canada or Brazil is what drives the new members. Since the founding of the ILC, the world's population has increased by a couple of billion, the proportion of yep. over 65 by 50 percent. And what have you seen change in this time? And can you kind of map us out around the world? You know, on the one hand, people now know we're aging in some ways. One of, one of the things I go on about with the team here all the time is, you know, fairly frequently the first paragraph of one of our reports talks about us being an aging society. And it's like, you know what, we don't need to show population pyramids anymore. If our audience doesn't know we're aging, frankly, we might as well go home. So so we're actually, we know we're aging and that's changed. I think, you know, one thing that hasn't, and I'll perhaps come back on to this, it's done enough of is focusing on solutions, not problems. And it's still the case that for most governments, um, there's a head in the sand here. For example, no one's really worked out how to do care really well and, and fund it as well. Governments are, of course, acting, but they're mainly being pushed by fiscal challenges. And actually, as a result of that, you know, some of the big innovation we might see may come from industry more, more than governments. I think across the world, in, you know, it's really interesting individuals, you know, it's great to have, you know, people like you advocating in this sort of space and engaged and interested. But it's, it's really striking how there aren't many champions, there aren't many individuals who are out there advocating Part of the problem is we all deny aging, that, you know, we pretend that our eyesight won't go and our hearing won't go and we're not like our dads and we won't get dementia and we won't get in a care home. And as a result of that, our own denial of aging, I think, means that a lot of us sort of pretend that, you know, it's not there. And so, you know, so for example, we know that, you know, charities and organisations that try to recruit in this space, there is nowhere near the same, you know, you don't get 18-year-olds, you know, Many 18-year-olds saying, I really would love to work in in and with older people or aging. You know, actually, if you're looking at, you know, you get, you know, huge competition around climate change and health. And and, and I think that's a challenge for us where we, where we haven't pushed the button. Aging isn't yet cool. It's have, really, it's, no. I think we're sort of getting there. And I think, you know, people in the in the US, you have Ashton Applewhite, who's, you know, getting millions of people onto her YouTube videos and going around the world with really accessible communications. And, you know, some of my colleagues in ILC, you know, ILC Brazil, you know, Alex Kalachi spends, you know, most of his time traveling around the world, to, you know, making the case. So we've got, we have a few people, but compared to other sectors, it's it's pretty, pretty 
week. I think, you know, sort of coming back to your, you know, what else has changed? Clearly, over 25 years, we have seen some huge changes, both in the UK and, and, and across the world, you know. So, medical advances, huge medical advances, HIV, for example, cancer treatments and screening. It's actually only 20 years, you know, it's interesting in the context of COVID, but it's only 20 years since we had a, a an adult vaccine specifically targeted at adults. So, the flu vaccine is only 20 years old for adults um, for older people and 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 actually what we what we did I suppose over the you know the the last the first half to the latter half of the last century was we reduced mortality and ill health amongst younger people by investing in health what's happened over the last sort of 30 to 40 years so the end of the last century up to now is we've reduced mortality in older people you know and and, and starting to improve health in in older people we've got you know a greater proportion of people born with a disability living into old age which is a huge success we've got age discrimination legislation across most of the world. We've got, you know, a recognition across almost all of the world that there needs to be social pensions or state pensions. So even the poorest bits of the world are looking at some of those things. And for example, you know, G7 sort of five or six years ago put dementia onto, it was core on the G7 agenda. So so we have seen, I think, some real progress, but I think that's when, it, you know, that's where it starts to getting a, a little bit more miserable, particularly at the moment, you know, it feels like across the world we're hoping technology will save us from aging but and that's almost the language we're using whilst we're actually also not really thinking about how we plan for the long term and the and and I, I you know if you i think coming back to the point around the the global agenda in some ways you know we, it is this challenge of us slowly aging has meant that we we haven't done it and I, and i you know you see in places like china a five year plan around aging which says we'll build, I don't know, I'm sort of slightly making it, I can't remember the exact figure, but you know, we'll build 150 day centers in Shanghai and they just did it. And 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 I think there's a sense of, you know, we we we're really struggling to do that sort of thing for lots of reasons in, in, in the West. Is the whole issue of dying with dignity part of the advocacy of the ILC? Because I, I it's bubbling up all over Europe. I see in Parliament. What's the what's the it, position? It's of the certainly ILC? you know it's certainly something that my chief executive Baroness Greengross was very very passionate about. It she she absolutely felt that we should have the choice to you know it, it, you know essentially if you are at a point where you're close to the end of life and you're living in pain and it's not tolerable that actually choice at end of life is, is extremely important. And you are, as you say, starting to see more debate from an ILC perspective, because we tend not to focus specifically on older people. We've not ever really done very much in this space, except to say, actually, we're a lot more interested in how all of us, young and old, live and die well, how we have conversations about dying, how we think about some of these issues. And we're a lot more interested in that than we are in the, you know, some of the debates around how do we get ourselves to live to 200 or whatever. I think we're, that's definitely not our agenda. We're, we'd be a lot more closer to, you know, in the context of the debate around dying, you know, actually, how, how do we make sure everyone has a good death. And I'm just curious, between the 
UK, so, it's in sort of in the House of Lords, I understand. Mm. Uh, how would you compare what's going to happen? Is it going to change in the UK, do you think? And how does I, that compare I, to the US, for example? So one thing that's really striking is that changing of the law around allowing people to sort of have greater choice at end of life is extraordinarily popular amongst individuals. So yeah. whenever there's polling, it's sort of 70%. You're, you're starting to see even, I say even, because, you know, there's lots of reasons, you know, doctors and nurses and others actually sort of who've historically been very concerned about it going to sort of more of a neutral point of view because they're of course seeing patients who are living and people who are living really really long times and not having a very nice time of it and and actually there is nothing nothing they can do frankly I think that you know clearly I suspect that we will we will see gradual changes there is talk at the moment of potentially changing the law in Scotland and what you find is if someone like Scotland will change the law actually England might then do it then afterwards because right. it's almost been tested over there but but you're right you're starting you know we you absolutely need the right safeguards we need to protect people but actually you know it seems intuitively to me to make sense that people you know should have at appropriate times with the right safeguards that the choice and really you know a very personal example my my mother-in-law died in the spring and in some ways had a pretty bad death in that she was backward and forward between hospitals and and a, a very very good charitable hospice uh, she had cancer so they were Actually, one thing to say is in the UK in particular, there is a very strong voluntary sector around cancer. So we have Macmillan nurses who provide advice and you have hospices for cancer. Of course, if you're dying of something else, there isn't the same support. So there's a real, so, so in some ways she had amazing support from the voluntary sector, but actually she, she got to a point where she decided she didn't want to have any more treatment, then ended up going, went home, then ended up back in the hospice, decided she to go back back home but then they could get her uh, adapted bed but they couldn't get her social care and then she had you know, basically three to four weeks in this what was a very expensive and very good voluntary sector you know hospice where sort of a week and a half into it she said to the doctors look you know I, I, I've had enough I, you know what can you do and the last two weeks she was not communicating they didn't feed her she did and every time of course they moved her body to reduce the risk of pressure we knew she was in pain because she was wincing. So you had this situation where basically there was nothing you could do for, you know, and she was not going to improve. And it strikes me that there are occasions like that where we should be doing. But overall, from an ILC point of view, I think we'd be saying that, you know, we just need to make sure that we have these conversations about what we want from end of life. And we're we're thinking about it across the the life course. Is this Um, a Western debate? What's Asia doing? Is Japan on this at all? I, you know, I don't know actually. I've okay. never, I've not heard it come up at all in, but, yeah. but, you know, so it may well be that at this stage it's sort of, so I don't know. I don't know. So I'm curious if I can switch yeah. gears a sure. little bit from the end of life to more, more mm. purposeful, mm. perhaps third mm. quarters. Mm. Is what, are, what do you feel companies are doing? I mean, you said there was an industry push for this, but. Are, are companies seeing a market opportunity in developing and responding to uh, the needs of Q3? But what about the, the talent side of the equation? Um, there's a big yeah. debate on retirement ages. Uh, Absolutely. It seems to go on and on. But they still kick people out the door a little bit post 50. 
No, definitely. My sense at the moment is that you have, so on the first, what you have is certain industries who've always been pretty good at dealing with, uh, supporting, engaging with older customers like the financial service industry because they're fundamentally the core, the core group that, you know, if you're for for insurance and, (laughs) you know, so they've worked and frankly, they know and get what older people want and, uh, and need. I think you're starting to see really interesting developments in use in other sectors like hospitality um you know frankly las vegas is an amazing age-friendly city they would never say this because of ageism but actually you know older people you know it's not necessarily 18 year olds that you're charging to las vegas it's people who who want to be looked after have all inclusive meals have nice you know be picked up from the airport and exactly the same for places like benedorm in europe where you're seeing really interesting initiatives that you know where they they probably would deny that they're focusing on older people but actually they clearly do i think there was an american beer company who created a beer for older people but ended up being one of their best and how's a bush and you know ended up being one of their best selling best selling beers so so i think there are things like that i think the real chat that there is a huge and you know what in the uk for example and across the figures aren't that different across the whole of g20 now 54 pence in every pound are you know of consumption is spending is made by households over 50 so a huge amount of consumer spending is made and it's growing the real challenge you've got is that actually um, older people, you know, in the main, with the exception of disability products, don't need anything different from any other age groups. And actually, many people actively rebel against being told that they need something just because they're older. So, so you, frankly, actually, most industry is a bit stuck because whilst, uh, you know, they may see a greater need for focusing on older consumers, actually, they wouldn't want to particularly talk about it. I remember um, there was, uh, Federer was being sponsored by one of the big clothing companies a few years ago and the, the head, it was front page of one of the papers and it talked about Federer targeting middle-aged sports fans through this and it wasn't, it was older people. But they yeah. just didn't want to use the language of older, older people. So, so in uh, so I think there's a real chance. So there is an opportunity around uh, around you know how you make tourism attractive, how you make leisure attractive, how we make transport work for all ages. But broadly, inclusive design works for all. And I think actually, you know, no one really wants a Facebook for older people. You know, frankly, that's probably what it is anyway. No one really wants a dating app for older people. No one wants a TV channel for older people. It's you know, it's just about how you how you think about products in that context. Now, work is different. I think this is where you see real drive. Are going to see real drive, and you're absolutely right. Across the whole of Europe and the US and other sort of Western countries, particularly, we really messed up in the 1980s and 1990s. We said to lots of people, actually, no, actually, go back a bit further. If you think, you know, immediately post-war, we had huge skill shortages in big bits of the in big bits of the world, and um, I remember seeing not too long ago an old Pafé news, those old grey news clips where they're encouraging people to do sort of the, the right thing. But there was a government in the UK campaign post-war of a, a man who looked like he was in his 70s blowing out his retirement candles where it was like, and it's really sort of sombre 
do you really want to retire? We need you, you know, sort of thing. And so you went from this in the 1960s to the 1980s where companies thought, oh, well, pension funds are doing okay. We've got lots of money and we've got all these younger people. Let's get rid of those older people and then it'll be fine. And then, of course, you got to the 90s and people realized they completely misunderstood the demography. They'd misunderstood the economics that actually having more older workers generated more jobs for younger people as well. And you've seen since the 90s just this gradual and very slow increase in participation of, of older people. And it is very slow to the extent to which participation of men in the UK in the workforce at 65 is very similar to what it was in the 1960s. It's not, you know, despite wow. the fact we've right. got it, Sorry. it went down and it's gone back up. Now, it's, it will continue to get. Now, why businesses will start to drive this now is they don't have any workers. In the UK alone, we, over the next decade, just because of demographic change, we're going to face a shortage of 2.8 million workers. If you take into account the move to part-time and ill health, that might be that might be 5 million workers. 2.8 million workers is two times the workforce of the NHS. You know, we have a situation in the, in the UK where, you know, our, our trains aren't running. We're struggling with planes because we don't have staff to, to man these things. And when I was in New York, I love, I love local TV and local TV news in the US is if you can find the bits in between the adverts. But I do, you know, generally they're brilliant. But, and I was in New York in just before um, July the 4th and I watched this news, news program it was 20 minutes half an hour and it was the you know the first story was about there was no lifeguards in new york for the fourth of july people who wanted to go to the beach the second story there was no firework technicians for people yes. who want to do fireworks third story was about the complete mess in the airline industry and everything being cancelled it was like you had a whole program that was basically saying we haven't got any workers yeah. and we've realized and but actually no recognition at all in that that it was because Older people have retired and not people, come back to work. Are connecting the dots, and, yeah. and 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 we we were there for an event at AARP actually, which we did with AARP. And one of the things that they said, I should probably shouldn't break their embargo. They've got some work coming out in October around the longevity dividend. And one of the things they were saying were that. That seems to be the case in the UK is that with COVID, what happened is, of course, at the beginning of COVID, lots of people 50 plus left the workforce, lots of yeah. 18 to 30 year olds, 25 year olds also, particularly those working in hospitality, lost their jobs. Um, what's happened sort of the last year or so is that the 18 to 30 year olds are back back in work, but actually yeah. the 50 year olds are not unretiring to the extent they were before. And there is some, I think the evidence from AARP suggests that the whole debate around the sort of the great resignation is entirely predicated on, you know, it, by the fact that um, it's older people not coming back to work. If you if, mass re early retirement. Yeah. Early and prior to, prior to COVID, a lot of people were retiring and then coming back to work. And, and, and I, so, so I, a very long way of saying I, I think that you know industry can can in some cases look to tech to support you know to, to change the way they do business but actually we are going to need to get people to work longer and and you know there are certain industries that can't use tech you know the, the one industry that's almost guaranteed well it's pretty guaranteed to grow is is the care sector and of course there is the the role of informed that voluntary carers family carers play an extraordinarily important role but actually you can't 
automate empathy and and actually a huge amount of care is is of course about helping people do what they want to do give me a bit of a gender slant on the work stats you were talking about men uh coming back to their sort of 60s labor participation women have been climbing up what what happened in covid Uh, yeah you think we're gonna see on the the differences between men and women in this period of their lives around work in particular so I think one of the things with clearly, again, actually, of course, since the 1970s, across most of the world, you know, frankly, what's driven economic growth economic has been growth. almost, uh, you know, it's almost a bit of a Ponzi scheme. And so, you know, basically, we've just got more and more women in the workforce and it's gradually increased. And gra- what we fail to do uh, and has continued to do, continue to do, so what we've completely failed to do is recognize that care is really important and someone needs to do it. And that includes both childcare and care for older people. We grudgingly got some of the first, but not uh, any of the second. Uh, no. And, and, and actually, most, you know, in lots of countries, we're starting to see, re- again, sometimes led by industry, frankly, not just government, we're starting to see really interesting initiatives to um, focus on how we um, make sure we pr- protect the, the the rights of the rights of workers and particularly women workers. So you know, care response, you know, benefits around care, for example. There's a, a one company in the UK that even gives grandparents sort of paternity leave. Um, so if if they have a grandchild, they can take a week off paid for paternity leave. So so you start. Who's that? Who's that? We that, should that, shout out. Yeah, that was Saga actually. So they just okay. started. They just started that. So. So you've seen this, you know, gradual increase anyway. I think that the real question going forward is how do you and how do governments and how do individuals recognise that, um, you know, we need to, uh, that the, fundamentally the, the big issue and challenge for women is that the the responsibility for care often falls on them. And that, as I say, is caring for children as well as grandparents, as well as parents. And and, and at the moment, because care is in a mess everywhere, frankly, you know, it, it's going to, you know, women, many women will find it really difficult to get to to get back into so so i think part of it of course is you know there's a bit of particularly in the early days of children and sort of biological reason why you a woman needs may need to provide some some care but one of the things that that i think you know is absolutely going to change it over the next few years is so for example in the uk we now have shared parental leave so this means that actually in terms of paternity leave that if you have a child that that the father as well as the mother could take six they could divide this the year the father takes six months and the mother takes six months and the really interesting thing about that is all of a sudden for companies out there in the past who've discriminated against women and said we don't want these women workers because they're going to go away and have children it's actually they can't do that anymore because the men might take the six months as well and i think that, that there may be a really long-term impact of that actually you're giving men permission to do it you're giving men responsibility to do it i met a guy um, a couple of weeks because, because elder care won't be quite so gendered, right? We all, we all have parents. Uh, absolutely, no. We ab- absolutely. I I met say I met a guy a couple of weeks ago from um, Reinsurer, and he was saying that you know his um, his mother normally cared for his father, 
because who had dementia and his mother had to go in for an operation and he had a week where he had to go to his father's and care for him. And he said, you know, it was the most joyful experience he's ever had. He loved, you know, he worked in a job where he could still do some emails and still do some work and still do some things like that. But actually the opportunity to, you know, it's, it's sometimes difficult because, you know, he'd got dementia, but actually the opportunity to be with him and support his dad was something actually that was joyful. And I think one way you get rid of the, you know, that we move things on is people realizing that you know it's actually you know that there is a value to this and you're you're doing it you know and and the care isn't you know and and I did almost by accident use the word burden I think it's the responsibility really you know and that and we shouldn't really be using burden around care because care can be really it can be really really hard work but actually yeah. can also be joyful and it can yeah. be something that actually is really empowering for you know for both for for, for individuals, for men and women. There's a really interesting gender thing that people don't often talk that is, and I think it's still true in the UK, is that because women have typically been more likely to work part-time than men, when they've gained, they've typically gained and lost caring responsibilities throughout their whole life. So you care a bit for children, then you care a bit for your parents and then you care a bit for grandchildren and, and things then, like that. So, you have a big pension uh, yeah yeah so you so you the the, the mum so so typically mums have worked part-time to sort of do that whereas dads have typically not they've worked full-time but what that's meant is when responsibility later in life to men has fallen for care for all sorts of reasons you know you might have got divorced it might be that you're the only one who can provide that care um it means men tend to fall completely out of the workforce. So, so what you see is men who become carers sort of later in life will be going from full-time into nothing, whereas women will be going from part-time work to staying into part-time work because actually they're used to doing it. They've got jobs that allow them to do it. They've got, you know, whereas men have traditionally not, not done that as well. And I, I, I mean, I find yeah. these kind of gender reactions also in yeah. retirement that men do go from 150% to zero kind of overnight and are very shocked, a bit lost. The adaptation time to retirement seems a lot more severe for men than it does for women who, as you say, have had more piecemeal along the way. And and nobody's really talking about that or supporting this need of transition. It's a really extraordinarily important point in that, so we know from voluntary sector services, certainly in the UK, I suspect in much of the West in particular, that and, and that 80% of users of those sorts of services are women, not men. And actually, you only have to look into, and it's not because the men have died. You only have to look at the people doing the dancing in China and Japan and Taiwan and, you know, and actually it's mainly women, not men. So there is something about a question around do men retire well or badly? Now, clearly most of men's relationships are often in the workplace and work is typically further from home. And so there are, and there are absolutely things we could do do there. Any um, research on that? The yeah, there's been quite a few, few things. And, uh, you know, just to sort of give a slight anecdote, I, had a guy who worked with me who as a volunteer and he'd run his own business and made his own clothes and he gradually got to the point where he, you know he imported linen and then made shirts he got to a point where you don't do that anymore you make shirts in somewhere else where it's cheaper to make shirts so 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 his business gradually went he came in and he said you know he volunteered and he said the first thing he said to me was look you know I went home and said to my wife what it's Tuesday what are we doing and she said it's Tuesday I go out with my friend on Tuesday I don't know what you're doing give an example where the 
is a is a bit of research and then one where there isn't. So one around, um, I did some work with a university vice chancellor who went on to chair a city of culture bid in Liverpool, was very, very active. One of his colleagues who retired at the same time from the university went back to his home and immediately started declining mental, physical, watched the TV, didn't do anything. And there's something about what what led to person one being really active and person two not. And I, I think that it's almost certainly around prepared for retirement. So the person who ended up going home was the one who, they both had mandatory retirements, so they were both forced on them, but one of them had thought more about what they were going to do than the other. And I, I, I think clearly mandatory retirement, we need meaningful activity and, and, and actually thinking about that before we retire is really important. Couldn't yeah. agree more, but um, am I cu- I'm just curious what you think before means. Is it, should we start yeah. thinking about this when we're 40, 50, 60? I, I think we probably do need to start, you know, it's really hard to know because of course we all, you know, have different life life trajectories. But actually increasingly we do need to be thinking, you know, and I think people on the surface do, but I think what happens is we don't have the serious conversations. What people say is, oh, I'd love to move to the countryside and, or I'd love to do, the, the, uh, you know, even though moving to the countryside is frankly a mad idea if you're, you know, there are no, why would oh. at the point you need services go to somewhere where there's no services and no networks and those, you and I think, for yeah, I need a car. And I think one of the things we don't do enough is have those honest conversations with people and and that in some ways leads us to not be prepared because people then move to the countryside or move somewhere or move to Florida and then they think oh I wasn't expecting that because I didn't even really think about it and and actually no one really said is that a good idea I think you know there are some real interesting questions around gender and and health from a couple of points of view around actually uh, that I, it's really interesting I've been looking recently about evidence around whether in old age and before women talk more about their health than men and one of the things that's striking is there's very they little research the, they certainly go to the doctor more well they absolutely go to the doctor I was with a doctor last week who said to me that basically he loses men between 18 and 60 and then they reappear at 60 so there but actually when you get into old age one of the things that really I've got this cycling group I lead which includes lots of men in their 80s who are still much much quicker than than I am and you know literally every other conversation is talking about their waterworks or their you know their sort of uh, personal health issues in a way that I don't think women would and I don't know if that's generally the crudity of men talking about bodily functions and things or whether it's just that they want an excuse for the fact they can't cycle up a hill at 15 miles an hour anymore but it strikes me that some of the things we've assumed about gender and care and health in old age may not actually be as true as we think they are and I think that there there is a need to think a bit more about that but without a doubt you know, you're you're absolutely right. You know, the way we age, it, fundamentally, the issues around you know gender, you know, and our identity has such an important impact. Yeah, even down to you know the stuff we're talking about with businesses. Frankly, you know, who makes the decision over who, which energy supplier you go, what clothes you get buy. You know, it's still the case that a lot of women buy men's clothes, particularly in particularly in retirement. But actually, there are certain you know, it, it's it's changing. But actually. It, it, it is important to think about actually who who is buying for you know that actually it's not always the, the person you spec yeah yep. yeah 
So maybe we'll end a little bit on the impact of COVID, two years that wiped out a a hell of a lot of older people all all around the world. What's what's the impact on the topic on organizations like the ILC? Has it woken us up or has it just kind of eliminated part of the conversation? I I think that... um, what COVID did for a very short period, and it's really striking if you look at um, you know, March and April 2020 um, and Google search terms, you had this huge spike in searches for the word elderly and vulnerable. And it's basically gradu- it's fallen back down to where it was before. Um, one Clearly what it did for a very short people period was make people think, oh yeah, there's a group of people here who, who may need something different. But actually, I think in some ways it was potentially harmful there because you automatically then associated old age with vulnerability. And so I think what should have happened is we should have come from it and said, look, actually, clearly lots of us aren't aging very well. You know, lots of us um, have bad diets, lots of us smoke, lots of us drink too much, lots of us eat too much. Actually, this is really bad for our health in old age. Um, We need as governments to be starting to think about how you facilitate to help us all be um, be healthier, how will you help us walk, how you help us cycle, how you help us make the right decisions. Um, my sense is that actually governments have already lost that now, you know, that actually most governments are already sort of, you know, even sort of cutting back on, you know, investment in preventative treatments. And and it seems to me that we just, we've sort of forgotten very quickly. And, and a bit of that might be the current sort of economic challenges that are facing the, facing the world. But, but it does feel like, um, and to give you a really good example, coming back to where we started, you know, it's now, it's t- more than 25 years. It's the 1997 Labour Manifesto in the UK, where we said we would establish a Royal Commission to work out funding of care in the UK. 25 years on, we're no further forward. And in fact, in some ways, because of the political mess in the politest way in the UK at the moment, it's hard to see that happening for another 10 years you know, certainly five years. So, so, so it just feels like there was an opportunity with COVID, but it's been missed. Let me ask one last question. Yeah. Your wish list then, maybe not for the next 10 years, but what about for the next, you're, you're 25 years old. What, what would you like to be seeing at the end of the next quarter century? I think the first thing is we need to stop we need to see aging as an economic and social opportunity and, you know, play into the finance ministers and health ministers and as well as health ministers and sort of not see longevity in a negative lens. And, and it is true that there are significant economic opportunities that come from us living, living longer. I, I think we ourselves have a responsibility to stop denying aging. I don't think we can possibly convince governments that they need to care about social care or pensions or health or the quality of care if we all think it's not going to affect us and then linked into the two i think it's the you know we need to consign ageism to the dustbin of history and i think one of the real challenges here and i is that actually you know ageism is so strongly correlated to sexism and ableism and and actually in some ways you know frankly you know as part of that if we can make progress on tackling ableism and sexism we will absolutely have made progress with ageism because i don't fundamentally think it's people's chronological age people you know you find which drives ageism it's the fact that someone is disabled and can't do things in the same way or that it's um someone who isn't male and can't you know and, and we've just Design systems around men. 
Ageism is a strange one because it's so directed against your future self. Is there is there it, research to how do we? I mean, that's a very bizarre one. Why we it, fear it's, it? Uh, it's, um, we feared it for mo- millions of years. This notion, the specter of death and, and mortality on our horizon. It is weird, isn't it? I just I suppose one thing to reflect on though is I remember when I was young and I, I gave my uh, my daughter a book recently that I found when when I was a kid and it's of course not very interesting to her. But actually, in it, I found this thing that was a thing about a twelve-year-old sort of who was too short to see above the shelf to buy the sweets in the shop. But actually, and and had the shopkeeper talking over them to their parents, and it was talking about ageism then and children. And I think actually we do need to start. We need to think about ageism from the context of actually how do we engage people of you know not discriminate it's younger people as well. And I think that's part of the you know the minute you can start saying to younger people you can't do this because you're only 16 you know we don't trust you to go into a hotel but we can send you to war you know being a certain age means that you can you can do a certain thing and i and i grant legislation to be fair legislation is changing and what we saw of course with you know issues around gender and other is is that sometimes it's going to take it might take 50 years from legislation to lead to social change and and I think we're probably at that point where we've got some legislation. Some of it's a bit rubbish. It will gradually get better, but but actually that will eventually lead to a point of you know ageism becoming as unacceptable as 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 other forms of discrimination. David, with science going the way it is, we may both live to see that. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> right. I want to thank you very much for fascinating input and discussion. Good luck with all you do, and I hope to meet you back again in a quarter century to compare notes. Absolutely. See you then. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining this conversation about Four Quarter Lives, where we're designing lives that don't just get longer, but better. For more, you can follow my columns at Forbes or read my own account of a year back at school at Harvard in my newsletter on Substack called Elderberries.